Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 27th, 2015, and my guest is Michael O'Hare, professor of public policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy, University of California at Berkeley. Our topic today comes from a recent essay he has written, Museums Can Change, Will They?, published in Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, and we'll put a link up to that article. Michael, welcome to EconTalk. Hi, Russ. Nice to be here. Well, early in your essay, you talk about approaching an art museum and the somewhat surreal atmosphere, the way the art's displayed, the way we interact with it. Uh, There might be an audio guide to help you along the way. At at the end, there's an upscale cafe, a gift shop. Uh, What are the... What's wrong with this? Is pretty great. What's What's wrong with that experience as it's uh, currently culturally structured? Well, uh, of course, it is pretty great. And as I'm going to say, some great grinchy things about the way museums are managed now. Um, and remember that we're talking about art museums. There's lots to learn about how to run museums well from science and history museums. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that everybody should go to your local art museum and look at stuff and take your time because they're full of great stuff. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's our, it's our visual cultural patrimony aside from architecture. That said, <laughs> um, so here's some things, here's some things that seem to me aren't what they should be. Uh, one is a striking fact that when we go and study muse- behavior of visitors in museums, the average attention time to a painting is between six and ten seconds. And that can't be right. My mother was a sculptor, and she didn't expect people to spend six seconds looking at her work and then move on to the next one. But a variety of things about the way museums are run and set up tend to encourage this flitting past great stuff to see if there's something even better. One of those is the admission price. When I was growing up, almost all museums were free. They weren't free in the sense that they didn't cost anything to provide, but the admission charge was zero. And you could go in and out for an hour or two, which is an appropriate time to attend to demanding art. Uh, but if you spend 20 bucks or 25, I think the, the MoMA is now up to $25 in New York. You kind of feel like you have to spend the day to get your money's worth. And by halfway through that day, you're pretty much museumed out and you're just plodding along. Uh, there, there's a kind of a, an odd deracinated feeling that you get wandering in these galleries that don't have windows and you don't know which way north is and it's just room after room. Well, I like uh, your, I liked your analogy to a uh, Las Vegas casino. Yeah, it's kind of like a casino <laughs> where they deliberately have no clocks and no way to see out. Well, it's missing uh, the food and the drinks, but uh, they're at the end. They are at the end. Well, they, yeah, they have – there's food and drinks. There, there's a cafe. Yeah. Um, when I uh, teach a class in arts and cultural policy at Cal, and one of the things we do is a museum uh, field trip, 
where we go to look at the museum as the institution that's presenting art to us as opposed to looking at the art. Although, of course, I can't stop them from looking at the art. Um, and one, one reaction a lot of, and we're talking about college students now at a top level university. A lot of the students volunteer the feeling that they just didn't feel like they belonged. Kind of imposter syndrome that I remember most from when I taught at Harvard and everybody had it. Uh, and there's a, it seems to me there's a lot that museums could do if they were more imaginative and had a better idea of what the visitor experience is really like to, uh, to undo that. Well, uh, I, I think should you hit on the right, I think you hit on it very directly in the essay. I, when you described it as uh, the art, in, art museum as something of a temple, I think yeah. we, we go there to worship uh, and admire. And uh, as you say, you want to genuflect in front of as many uh, icons as you can. So you tend to, I, I'm definitely in that six-second group until I get to something that I'm told by somebody else is, quote, worth seeing, right? I, I zip along. Yeah. I glance yeah. at a few. I'm an, I'm an ignoramus, by the way, we'll, as will be revealed. But, but I, wanna, I, I, I try to like art. I was deprived of it as a child. Uh, my parents are not art lovers. They love poetry and music, and I have a wonderful heritage from them. But art was something to be ignored as inexplicable and, and inaccessible. And as an adult, I've tried to, to get into art, and the museum doesn't help. And I think that's a tremendous insight. There is, as you say, the occasional audio guide. They are remarkably unhelpful. Uh, when there's yeah. a, a special exhibit – when there's a whole bunch of people in the museum who've never been there before, who've come to see the Monet or the the Egyptians or whatever it is, uh, the level of um, nonsense and inaccessible academic uh, discourse on those audio guides is remarkable. Uh, it's Wait tremendous. a minute. You're not authorized to judge that as nonsense. <laughs> that's right. I'm just an amateur. How dare I? But, but well, but I think that's I think that's actually uh, one big problem with the museum experience is a kind of a worship. Well, the problem is that that museum people, curators, and and directors are afraid of their collections uh, in a way that science museum uh, people are not, and so the result is that that um, everything is presented as though it's absolutely wonderful. And it's not often very clear because a lot of the discourse on the audio guides and on the labels and, and tags is written in a kind of art historical. The language that, that, the language that art experts use to speak to each other about art. Um, and I had, a, uh, um, I had a graduate student many years ago who was a nurse. And she took my course in public management. At the end of the course, we were chatting about it. And she said she liked the course and there was lots of interesting stuff. But it did seem to be again and again about one big idea that they had been taught in nursing school, and the big idea was start where the patient is. And that's where I think the presentation and education side of art museums typically fails. Now, I have to say, they're, they're, museums are getting a lot better since I first worked in a museum, which was decades ago at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which was really, at that time, really unfriendly to visitors. Um, there's an, I could pass on an anecdote. I don't remember if I put it in that essay, but I did a visitor survey. Uh, the first, the first, I may say, the first visitor survey to my knowledge that got the same people coming and going. Uh, and I was able to ask, what do you expect to see when you're here? 
And then when they left, I could ask, what did you see? And I could correlate this uh, visitor by visitor with a code number. And I was struck by the fact that lots of people couldn't find what they came to see. <laughs> because the MFA is a pretty big museum, and it's now bigger. They've added a fair amount of exhibition space. And the other thing they complained about was that there was no place to sit. And you're walking around, uh, actually, probably miles, when a, a day-long visit to a big museum, uh, it's a hike. And I, I made a map, very proud, I was very proud of this, and made a map of the museum with uh, all the galleries that had comfortable seating, which I defined to be anything with some upholstery, uh, bright green, and any seating, which could be a bench, light green, and no seating, pink, and chairs on display, and no seating, bright red. So I brought this to a staff meeting, and all of the decorative arts galleries where all the furniture was on display was bright red. And that was a quarter mile around a loop in that museum, and some little old lady starts in at one end of that and keeps passing by chairs with ropes on them and can't sit down until she can get out the other end. And I thought we should fix this. Yeah. Well, in in a lot of galleries, I've noticed, um, and again, for an ignoramus, I spend a decent amount of time in art museums. Um, but there are occasionally benches in the middle. Yeah. And they are often occupied by serious-looking folk who are staring intently at the paintings uh, that are across from them. And there's room for about six people. There's about 70 people in the room. <laughs> yes. And there's six well, of them sitting down comfortably being contemplative. The rest of us are thinking maybe they'll get up or, you know. Well, this is a, you know, there, there are, um, there are trade-offs and uh, you don't want to turn, an, I don't think you want to turn an art gallery into an auditorium with, you know, comfortable seating. And the, you could sit down and then have the paintings march by or be projected on the wall for you. So, uh, so it's, th this has to be managed. But the curator of those decorative arts galleries, 10 minutes into this meeting, said, Mike, I don't understand why we're spending time on this. If I want to sit down, I can go to my office. I don't need chairs in the galleries. And um, as I rarely am, I was kind of speechless. Uh, what, you know, who, whom are you running this institution for? Uh, at, at that time, the, they were not very conscious of the fact that a large part of their funding was charitable contributions, which are tax deductible and therefore contained a lot of public money. Um, but as I said, museums have changed and, and uh, gotten more audience friendly in many ways. But they could do much better. Uh, one, for one thing, I don't know, should we, should we talk about why I'm, why my hair is a little on fire about this given the yeah, resources well they have? I want to read. I want to read. I want to read a quote actually that I think will kick us off. Um, sure. You, and I, I want to introduce the quote by saying that I once heard from uh, Richard Mahoney, the uh, former CEO of Monsanto, that if you want to know what a institution's mission is, you look at what they do, not what they say their mission is. Yeah. So uh, what most art museums do is they put art on the wall. Uh, that's sort of their mission. I would say, is to display the art. Uh, you point out, and here's the quote coming, you, see, you point out that their actual mission is unclear. Uh, you write the following. The purpose of an art museum is more, better engagement with art. Anything a museum does that can't be connected back to this goal is peripheral and incidental, which uh, raises the question, what is more and better in the phrase more and better engagement with art? And so I 
Why don't you talk about that? Uh, sure. Well, um, let me go. Let me go back a little bit and talk about the mission and the apparent mission. What museums mostly do is to possess art. Uh, any any major art museum displays less than five percent of the art it owns at any given time, and will never display more than about eight percent. Which is shocking. <laughs> the rest of the collection is in storage. Well, museum people will say, "Look, our job is to preserve this stuff and to display it." And you know, given our resources, we do the best we can. But that's that's what's actually happening. So you, if you walk around the museum. You can't see what they mainly do with the art they have because it's not on the wall. And there, you know, it's worth noting, uh, there's some kinds of art that can't be displayed all the time, like works on paper have a finite lifetime. And every minute they're on display is a minute off that lifetime. So you have to sort of parse it out over time. But um, more better engagement with art is intentionally a complicated formula. It's it's what my students come up with after we talk about, well, what are the goals of arts policy? Like, you know, what, what should we hold the government accountable for as it affects the fine arts? <clears throat> and um, it can mean many different things. It's not, a, it's not a precise optimization formula. Better engagement has to do with the kind of education and introductions that we were talking about that often isn't there. And more, at the least... Um, would have to do with showing more and having the art in places where people would actually see it. So, uh, uh, could, so, you know, we've now got a list of things museums could do to be more better. They could hire more educators. They could do actual research on audience behavior and experience. They could build more gallery space and show more of what they have. Um, not necessarily all in the same building, which you now can't see on one visit anyway. It could be spread out. Um, so, but as you point out, when when if you confront a museum director with that encouragement, they'll say, "Well, we're already spending. We're at, yeah, we're at the limit. We're broke. We're right." They're, exactly. So they're 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 resource constrained, and people do give them money occasionally, and and they have an endowment, and they take the income from the endowment. So let's look at the financials. Uh, what's the financial situation of the museum? And here's where you get a really striking difference between, um, between art museums in particular and other highbrow art presenting institutions. So look at the balance sheet of a museum and there's, um, the endowment, which is maybe, I don't know, $100 million and they get income from that every year and that's in stocks and all accounted for properly. And there's the building and it's not clear what a used museum building is worth, but Accountants have ways of valuing unique things, and uh, there's the furniture and the uh, equipment, and then there's the tractor to mow the lawn, and that's the end of it. Um, and people may have noticed, where's the collection? Yeah, I, I never thought about it, never looked at a balance sheet of an art museum. That's rather remarkable. Uh, I don't know of any art museum, and I'm happy – if you know when the article has been out, offending, <laughs> offending museum people for a few weeks now, <laughs> nobody sent me a balance sheet and said, "Hey, here's ours." But um, what's important about this is that the numbers are absolutely breathtaking, and I was able, um, I was able, uh, starting from two museums that have in fact valued their collections. Uh, one is our Berkeley uh, uh, Berkeley Art Museum on the campus here at Cal, which assessed its collection for insurance purposes once. 
not too long ago. And the then director was careless enough to tell me what he came up with. And that was, at that time, it was three quarters of a billion dollars, which is 20%, as I recall, is 20% of the total endowment of the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, the other one is the Detroit Museum, which in the city's bankruptcy, because of the accident that the, that the museum is a city agency, uh, in the bankruptcy of Detroit, they had to go and say, well, you know, what have we got here? And, of course, there was a lot of noise in the art world. You, you what? You, you think this is an asset of the city? And, mm-hmm. yes, it was. And the, um, and the wealthy citizens of the Detroit suburbs who'd been enjoying the museum all these years had to step up and, and uh, uh, take it over and, and pay the city for that. So... That, uh, and take and what, was that, what, what was that number, Detroit? I think it was, I think it was $8 billion, between 2 and $8 billion, depending on how you count. The, the important thing in this is the number of zeros, by the way. Uh, but anyway, I was able, I, what I was able to do was to say, well, let's take the budget of the Berkeley Museum and the budget of, and I used the Art Institute of Chicago and kind of <laughs> beat them around the head and shoulders in this article for no fair reason just because it's where I started, where I had their financials. Uh, but this is going to be true of any major any major art museum. You're going to get similar results, and even more for some. Like, you know, the Met is even bigger and richer. So I was able to take the budgets, uh, the operating budgets of the museum, and use that to scale the collections I had up to the AIC's budget. And then I was able to take the number that's, of objects. That's the, the institu- AIC is art the Art Institute, Institute of Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. And then I was able to use the number of objects and scale that up. And um, what I got was about $35 billion, plus or minus, I don't know, five or ten. Um, that's a nice piece of coin. And uh, your local symphony orchestra does not have anything like that. Uh, it's Again, it's unique to, unique to art museums. And again, let's remember, almost all of it is underground and will be for the foreseeable future. So what could you do with this? I guess my favorite examples are, well, we could take, uh, we could take 1% of that. Uh, when, when the Art Institute expanded its building, and good for them, they can show more art. Um, when they expanded their building a few years ago, they raised the admission price, and there was a big discussion in the press about whether this was right to do this. I think they're now up to $18 for adults. And um, if you took 1% of that collection... And let's remember what we're doing. We're selling off the bottom, you know, the least valuable, least distinguished works. And it would be way more than 1% of the number of objects. But if you sold 1%, you could endow free admission forever. And that's, that strikes me as being a significant operating decision. Uh, now we, we're looking at a museum that has 99% of what it has now in value terms. And it's free all the time. Which would um, seem to be, as we, know, as we know, when prices go down, people tend to do more of those things. And that would seem to be a good thing. Yeah, but they also do it better. Instead of, instead of being psychologically trapped in the building for a whole day because it costs so much to get in and you really want to get your money's worth. And by four hours, you're not getting your money's worth. You're just glazed. I mean, the... The stuff on the walls of a big art museum is demanding and deserves attention. And nobody can do that for six hours. So, um, so they, not only do people go more, uh, I think, um, 
I think attendance at the British National Museums when they took the admissions price off and went to zero, which is the right price for many reasons we might get to later, um, the attendance went up um, by a third, uh, maybe more. And but the important, the other important thing is that the experience of the people who attended was much better because they said, "Yeah, let's let's go see two hours worth of great art and not feel like we have to see the whole thing." Or um, half an hour, and or half come an back hour. tomorrow, or half an hour. Go, exactly. Go sit in front hey, of it's lunchtime. One great. Go see my painting. favorite painting. Yeah. Right. Which is when I'm in Washington and I have a you know half an hour, an hour, and I'm in the neighborhood. I'll go to the National Gallery and visit the Vermeers, and then go look for something else I haven't seen for a long time or haven't ever seen, and then I'll go about my business. And that's a much higher quality art experience. Uh, so, so there's there's more better engagement right there, and. Um, so now I guess we have to talk about the deaccession controversy, which is a controversy that has capital letters and a standard name. And the controversy is, let me see how I can capture this. When I talked about this to our local museum director um, here at Berkeley, I had lunch with him when I got into this research. And altering, Larry is a nice guy and, and means well, but altering lunch, he sort of kept backing up from the table. <laughs> And um, giving me the fisheye, and he said, "Look, if I ever did that, and he meant selling art." That's that's the uh, deaccession. Is deaccessioning the is the fancy jargon. name for selling, yeah. right? Um, you you could sell a tractor, but a painting you deaccession exactly. <laughs> uh, if I ever did that, no one would ever lend my museum a painting for a traveling show or an exhibition, and I would never be able to lend our work to any other museum. And the reason for that is that there is an association of museum directors code of ethics, and that's what it says. So the museum it says, directors it have, says don't don't lend somebody a painting if they're so not, naughty exactly, that they exactly. might if, that they sell some of their other paintings. If they if the any any museum I'm I'm re, I'm paraphrasing, but basically it says any museum that sells art for any purpose other than to buy more art. So it's okay if you have if you have you know, three paintings by painter A and none by painter B, and you'd like painter B and you sell an A painting and buy a B painting. That's okay. But if you ever sell out of the collection for any purpose other than more collecting, then other museum directors are forbidden by this code of ethics to interact with you in any professional way. I think you're not even allowed to have coffee at a conference with them. It's just outer <laughs> darkness. And, uh, and, and, you know, a code of ethics sounds kind of like a, like the Ten Commandments. It's a moral guide. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was written by the museum directors, and it's not at all. And I mentioned in the article that once upon a time, lawyers were forbidden by their code of ethics strictly to advertise that, you know, that it was totally bad behavior for lawyers. And now they're not. There was a court decision that said you can't do that. And lo and behold, we still have lawyers. We still have law. People can you know, still sue each other, uh, the Republican doers. It turned out it wasn't such a fundamental thing. Television's a little tedious with these lawyer ads, but uh, that's, that's as bad as it's been. So so that's the, the situation is that, as I said, that the, the professionals in charge of art museums have arranged for themselves that they never have to ask these questions. And then when you go back to the accountants, um, the, the last time this issue of putting the collection in your balance sheet, which is, and that's, I should say that that's the major reform that I'm angling for 
Um, I think there are lots of creative and imaginative people in museums uh, who would like to do interesting things with a collection, like label them in a way even I could understand. Um, and um, and give us the right to think, hey, this is a bunch of jive. This is you know they're they're putting this on the wall, and it's okay for me to think that it's a crock, and and that whole spirit is discouraged. So there's a variety of things that they could do. Um, and what I think my significant contribution here, if there's anyone, is to say, look, they have the resources to do this, and. The accountants say, well, if you're never going to use this asset as a financial resource and you're not going to borrow money against it and you're never going to sell it, then it doesn't have to be reported. And I think that's wrong. And I think when you report it and you get numbers like these billions of dollars collections, then people are going to start asking questions and say, you know, have you... This is really a lot of money and art that you don't show. Have you put your assets, have you allocated your assets properly between the endowment, which throws off money to do things with, and the art, most of which you don't show or do anything with? I mean, the stuff in the vaults not only is not going to be shown, it's not going to be written up in art journals. There's just too much. Thousands, uh, tens of thousands of objects. Um. So, that, so I'm thinking that, you know, if we put the facts out there, then there would start to be some conversation. And I guess, you know, people who are listening to this, here's my short-term advice. Never give a penny to any major art museum that you might be thinking of making. And I, again, I love art museums, and I believe in giving to arts institutions. But don't give any major arts institution a penny until they fix their accounting and report their collections and their balance sheet. And then... Let's have a conversation about it. But as you point out, I think when most people are thinking about this, they think, well, if they sold off some of their collection, say, that isn't being displayed right now, it would be bought by other art museums. So it's really not, you know, it's, it's such a big deal. Where would they put it? And, of course, yeah. the answer is is that there are a lot of museums right now that are small and would love to have some of the, quote, leftovers, the scraps <laughs> from the <laughs> exactly. great art museums. And they're in places that are thirsty for art and uh, your table, you have a table in your paper, rather remarkable table of the distribution of Monet paintings in the United States. Uh, there's two in Florida, and there's a bunch in Illinois, and a lot of them aren't on display. Right. So, so uh, my my friend uh, Gene Smolinski, an economist uh, who's written about arts. <laughs> economics of art, um, asked me early on in this project, he said, well, it seems to me the question in this paper is if we could redistribute all the art in the world to an optimal allocation, would it wind up where it is now? And that's a rhetorical question because the answer obviously is no, <laughs> it wouldn't. It would, a lot of this stuff would wind up in places where people could actually look at it and would love it because, you know, that's our Monet here in Rapid City or something. So, um, well, so was... if if we sold this, so okay, it doesn't all go to other museums. Um, it could go to a new museum maybe it goes that hasn't. To private... But it could go to a new museum that hasn't started. That doesn't exist right now. You could start that, a new museum, a great museum, for example. Um, but it also might go to private collectors. It depends on the rules of whom you sell it to, and we could we could think about those. Um, but a private collector is probably going to put it on the wall, and at least his friends. And dinner guests will see it. And the important thing is now nobody is seeing it. 
So that looks to me like a plus. Uh, any way you slice it. Again, if you accept my if you accept my proposition that the that the object of the museum enterprise is for people to be engaging with art rather than for museums to be possessing art, then I think all of these questions come to the surface and that they're real possibilities once we understand how much enormous wealth has been accumulated and isn't being put to use. So as an outsider, uh, first of all, it's surprising. I would never have guessed the ratios that it's so much is not displayed. And I guess my second thought would have been, okay, well, they just sort of rotate it every few years. The They display the stuff that isn't on display now. It just might take a few years. But you're suggesting it's never displayed. No, most of it, I mean, most, most, no, will never be displayed. These are secondary works, and there's always, there's only so much wall. And um, so maybe 5% is on display now, and another 5 might be pulled out of the vaults at some time in the future. And then, of course, we have to think, well, by that time in the future, you the way you're operating now, you will have accumulated how much more art and how many more square feet of wall, because museums can't expand forever and shouldn't, I mean, physically. So now this stuff in the basement that you're not showing now is going to be competing with even more good stuff to get wall space. And I think that, you know, when does that time come? The answer is never or a tremendous fraction of this. But again, I'm happy to have, you know, I'm happy to have this be a more public debate. And here I, here I, I put it to trustees who tend to be wealthy business people with experience who are tough minded, you know, analysts of financial reports and, um, state attorneys general who are in charge of the proper management of nonprofit institutions in their states. Um, and I'd say, let's talk about it. Let's get the facts out and let's see if we're using this incredible, precious patrimony to create the most value. And if we're not, uh, then let's start doing it. You know, that's, that's my expectation is every time I've talked to people about this, um, and, and we get to the numbers, um, that these, that these collections represent, they, their pupils dilate and they say, what? How much? Uh, this, um, yeah, it's somewhat shocking. Yeah. So there's everybody, everybody in Chicago has what is three and a half million people in the metropolitan area and, um, $35 billion, like $3,000 endowment sitting in the basement of this museum. Well, I think there's more than 3.5 million people in the metropolitan area, but I, okay. I, I take the point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the pricing because I think the – you talked about the that the price should be zero, the admission price. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, as an economist, I'm, of course, sympathetic to that and some and some economists would, should, would say you should be wary of it. But let's uh, – all right. Well, I, I, let I, me I, review that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so um, I'm an, I'm not an economist. I'm an architect, and my PhD is in engineering. But I've had the very good fortune in my whole professional career to hang out with economists, and almost all of them have been um, happy to teach me um, a lot of economics. And you know, maybe I don't get this right, but the one thing it seems to me that economists wake up. If you wake them up in the middle of the night and say, "Hey, what's the most important thing?" They will say. <laughs> Marginal cost pricing. That the way the way to make a market work properly is that everything should be offered for sale at its marginal cost, which is the cost of someone using it. 
And that's why you can walk on the sidewalk and not pay um, and not have to buy a ticket. Because when you walk on the sidewalk, there's no less sidewalk for anyone else. And uh, that's why the fare on most transit systems is much too high, because when you ride it and it's not rush hour and there are empty seats, you're not really consuming anything by sitting in the seat. And so you ought to get the right price signal. Well, except for a few museums in the world, I'm thinking of the Uffizi, MoMA in New York, the Louvre lately apparently is getting overcrowded. But except for a very few museums, if you go, there's a little extra wear and tear on the floors. And there's some uh, labor. Uh, it's hard to imagine what else is required. You might, you might cause some damage to something. But basically, you're not taking anything away from anyone else. You can look at your painting. Somebody else looks at their painting. And the short... Um, the short economic analysis, well, the marginal cost of an additional museum visit in a museum that's not congested now is zero. And it's really important that people get the right price signals about what they do so they do the right amount of it. Yeah, uh, I, but, I, agree, I agree with most of that. The only issue with the terms of the transit is that the question is should the user bear some of the cost of uh, create the capital costs, right? And that would be the same issue with, say, Software and many, many things that have high upfront costs and very small costs uh, per user after the fact. And yeah, in this, this case, <laughs> but, in, but, but in this case. I want so badly to draw a picture right now, but. <laughs> that's okay. It's, uh, resist it. But in, but in this case, uh, the issue, presumably most of the people, maybe all of the people who donated the paintings and who paid for the building often. Did so not with the goal of making money. <laughs> they did so with the goal of having art be available to the public. Right. So in the absence of, say, a high-traffic special exhibit, uh, you'd think that the argument should be uh, pretty close to zero. It would be a good idea in the interest of the people who funded the enterprise, which yeah. raises the question, the current policies that are not that way – would presumably be justified along the lines of what I just said. If you were the, if you were to confront the director of the uh, Art Institute of Chicago, I assume the director would say, "Well, it's true. It's better to have zero because when it's not crowded, and we do on Tuesday nights, it's free or whatever. I'm sure they have a free afternoon yeah. or a day, uh, which they do in many museums. But you would say, well, the rest of the time we need that to pay for our uh, activities. We need to pay our salaries. We need to pay our my yeah, salary." So but they don't because they've got this tremendous asset they have locked up that should be redeployed to create more value. So I agree with you. Now, <laughs> the question then is, since I think that seems logical, what stops the <coughs> director of the museum from uh, – who, who else besides you, public uh, academic, public intellectual, or me, host of Econ Talk? Uh, we're holding their feet to the fire, but we're not very close to the fire. So the yeah. trustees and others, who, who's, who does the director report to? Who is, who is the director responsible to that might speak this language? Well, the, legally the trustees, and above that, again, the state attorney general, because this is a nonprofit institution, and, and um, that's, uh, that's who's in charge of making sure that nonprofits do what they're supposed to do. 
<laughs> these are educational nonprofits. There's a bunch of categories uh, under which you can get the tax exemption that allows donors to give you um, to to deduct the gift from their income, which means which immediately attaches a public subsidy because someone else pays the taxes that you don't pay. Yeah. Um, so. Um, but I think it, I think it's also, you know, kind of PR. I put that article out there to get people talking over dinners and nice places, um, about whether they're really doing their job. And one thing that struck me when I worked, when I worked at a museum, I was really struck by the willingness of these mostly, you know, tough-minded business people who get on museum boards to just their, their brains and their critical faculties kind of turn to mush in the presence of art. Uh, if they're it's intimidation, yeah. Um, it's and there's even there's if the sociolog- director, even if the director doesn't say so, he implies, yeah. she implies, <coughs> you don't know what you're talking about. This is my area, not yours. Yeah, and remember what the director has a fair amount of influence on who the trustees are. The boards tend to be self-replicating, but you know the director is there every day and yep. chatting with people. Um. The uh, a former director of the Met is famous for saying uh, Thomas Hoving. He said, "I think it was Thomas Hoving who said, well, the most important qualification to be a trustee is the ability to write a check for three million dollars.'" Absolutely. <laughs> and I think if we had more trustees who were artists, and if members of a museum could elect a trustee, this is another bizarre thing about museums. <laughs> they have this thing called membership. Yeah, I love that observation. It's so good. And so everything I'm a member of, like the faculty of the University of California and the Democratic Party of California and uh, um, my neighborhood improvement association, you know, I get to vote on governance. That's sort of what it means to be a member. And art and art institutions generally, membership is a quantity is a quantity discount for admission and uh, invitation to events and parties. But there's no relation to governance in any museum I'm aware of, and, and that would help. You know, let's, let's select a couple of trustees and get the visitors' views in those boardrooms where they're making operating decisions. So one of the issues here, of course, uh, hovering in the background is w- what um, what we might call groupthink. Most yeah. of the directors come from a certain experience, career experience, certain educational experience, and what you're saying to, is weird to them. Little, it's threatening, but it's also just weird. It's so, it's dismissible because it's so outside the box. It raises the question of whether you, Michael O'Hare, would be a good candidate. You, literally you, or one, someone else, could start a new museum with a different philosophy uh, from scratch. Yeah. A different philosophy of interaction, a different philosophy of collecting, a different philosophy of displaying – um, what's stopping that? That could happen. Maybe it will happen, but what's stopping that? If any, uh, well, okay. So one, you do sort of need a collection to have a museum. Although I would say, keep your eye on, keep your eye on, for example, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which is at, a, at an interesting stage in its development. The, um, and I, I guess we, we should talk a little bit about the sociology of this business. It's going to be a little roundabout, but I will try to get back to your question. Um, Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, wrote a wonderful book called Distinction, in which he's characterized the art world uh, as a stalemated battle for dominance between two elites. And one is the elite of money, people who are rich, 
and the other is the elite of education and taste. Yep. And it, it has been historically, although much less true now, and this is a, this is a big problem for the arts, uh, a big looming problem, I think, but it has historically been the case that if you made a lot of money, it was made clear to you that there was kind of a richesse oblige um, expectation that you were going to get yourself on the museum board and write a big check or the symphony board and that you should present yourself as having some acquaintance with the fine arts to to establish social standing. But to do that because you don't have much time because you're making money, that's your job, you have to go to the educational elite of art dealers, curators, museums, uh, university professors to find out what's good and to buy the right art and to have opinions about the new piece played at the symphony or the opera. Um, so um, giving art giving art to a, a I'm thinking about an art collector now. So one of the things that, that people have done when they when they accumulate wealth is that often for most sincere reasons they fall in love with art and they start buying it. And then they find that they have more art that they can show in their house or in their summer house and they start looking for a place to give it away and the place the obvious place is a museum. And if you can arrange to give your collection to a very high-status museum like the Met or the AIC, then you get um, more social status. Points. Points. <laughs> Score yeah, points. Ab absolutely. <laughs> uh, so as I said, this is, this is becoming less true. Larry Ellison has not endowed a museum, but he has bought an island in Hawaii to do. I'm not sure what, what the new the new... The new wave of rich people hasn't entirely bought into this uh, traditional expectation. So you take your collection one of the reasons, museums. One of the, reasons by, one of the reasons they haven't is that the best works of art have already been bought by somebody, given away to a museum. So they need a new way to. Well, certainly the best. Certainly the best old art. Yeah. Uh, people are. Go. I mean, painters are still painting. Yeah. And, fair enough. And the talent, you know, the talent is out there. So, uh, so these are mostly collectors of modern works. And um, and they will literally set museums against each other and say, well, if I give you my collection, will you promise to display it with my name on it? Um, and uh, the museum director says, gee, we really don't like to make those commitments. And the donor says, well, I will go down the street. So getting back to SF MoMA, the, the history in California is kind of interesting because at the, at the end of the 19th century, the elite, um, you know, movers and shakers in San Francisco decided that they had um, made for themselves a world-class cultural city. In fact, it was the equal of Paris, if you thought about it. I mean, it was really right up there. And they told each other this story and never did anything about it hmm. to, to speak of. And woke up after World War II. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, uh, a city um, characterized by a constant sense of cultural insecurity, yep. rich people in Los Angeles were collecting and building museums and funding the symphony. And, uh, you know, there's always lots of theater in, in L.A. because of the movie industry. So the, the movers and shakers in San Francisco woke up after World War II and said, oh, my gosh, we have a third-rate a third-rate opera, a second-rate symphony, um, a third-rate museum, and what do we do? So they fixed the they fixed the top-level performing arts institutions um, with money and attention, and we now have a first-rate symphony, for example, in an excellent dance company. But it was too late. Great it opera. was too late to fix the museum because 
um, all of the all the of the stuff was taken. classic <laughs> stuff, yeah, has you know had been collected and put in other museums. So SF MoMA is starting out with a splendid photography collection and a uh, not a not a world class art collection, and they've had to take a different path. And the next thing that happened was that they 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 were given this very large collection and money to build uh, to double the size of their building. And they had to close for two years. So now everything at SF MoMA has been kind of thrown up in the air while they're operating in, out of, you know, out of garages and uh, temporary quarters here and there. And um, I know the, uh, um, I don't remember her exact title, but she's sort of the outreach and education curator. And she is full of interesting um, creative ideas about how a museum that isn't trapped by having this, you know, a world-class intimidating collection can make itself a real community resource. So I, I expect all sorts of interesting things to come out of that experiment. That's not a new museum, but it's, it's a museum reinventing itself. Um, other, other than that, your idea, okay, start a new museum. Well, it's really expensive. Uh, you build a building and you have to start collecting and you're going to have to start collecting in niches that haven't been, um, uh, haven't been already mined, but, if the if the big museums that are keeping all this stuff away from us would put it out there, then there's prospects of actually doing that. And you're not going to have an Art Institute of Chicago class collection to start, but you could have a very good a very good art experience for people in small towns and small cities that have no prayer of having that happen now. And of course, one of the reasons that there's not more pressure on those museums. Well, this isn't quite true, but what I was going to say is if you want to see a – if you're in a state that doesn't have a Monet and you want to see a Monet, you got to go to it. But that doesn't that doesn't help explain why they keep the ones in the basement. Right. Um, that's just and, a waste. And it's not, just, it's not just Monet's. I mean, if you go – you sort of go one level down the, down the famous scale or two levels down, they're keeping six and seven in the basement. Uh, the Berkeley – Berkeley Art Museum is famous for having, uh, um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but a lot of Hans Hoffmans, uh, maybe half of the, half of the Hans Hoffmans in the world. A very large, the artist collection when he died, I think, went to our museum. Well, that's totally inappropriate. There's no reason, and, and we don't show, but, you know, one or two. There's no reason at all why a small museum, especially an educational museum, should be so overloaded with the work of one artist and, and not that important an artist. And they could have a much better educational, much more varied collection if they if they if they weren't afraid to clean out three quarters of those and and buy a bunch of different stuff. So let me turn us to a slightly um, a different question, which is how one might experience an art museum in this uh, in a better world. And I'm going to give you a couple ideas, and then I, I want to hear your ideas. Um, so right now, there's I'm, – I'm often guilty of the six-second thing. Uh, I did learn from my colleague and econ talk guest, Tyler Cowan, that when you enter a gallery, it's, it's a good idea to pick one piece that you'd like to take home and try to understand why, if you could take it home, why that would be your choice. Yeah. The other thing I would think about is uh, the um, – I should point out, by the way, that that, that – 
trying to understand why you'd like to take it home takes um, 10 minutes, not 10 seconds. Right. Or maybe even an hour. Well, the first time it might take 10 seconds. I say, well, I like the look of that and I'm done. But I picked that one. But yeah, it would be a thinking about it would be seems like a useful thing. But the other thought I had is, which I think is the strangest thing, and you allude to it indirectly, I think, in the article, is if I go into a, an art museum, you know, I want to see the famous things. Like you said, I want to go and at the National Gallery, I want to see the, um, you know, the the 12 things that, are, that they tell you to see. And yep. I walk by the 3,000 things that aren't told to me to, that as, as important. They don't get yep. six seconds, by the way. They get two seconds, or I don't even go in the in the room. And it strikes me that, you know, if we treated music, think about music. It's like, okay, we're going to listen to Beethoven's Ninth because everybody agrees it's the, one of the greatest pieces of all time. But there, there's, there's other music, and you could like it more than Beethoven's Ninth because of your personal taste. But in yeah. art, you feel really guilty. You feel like, well, I like that more than the famous one. And yet you feel like, well, as you said, I'm not worthy of making that judgment. But of course right. you are. <laughs> yeah, well, you are and you aren't. I think um, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for um, – I mean, I've my, – my taste in art has changed a lot um, having, for example, when I worked at the MFA, every now and then the curators would take me around their galleries and talk about their stuff. Usually they were – um, trying to find a way that they could either get more gallery space or get the air conditioning installed sooner or something. Um, but they, they just can't stop talking about their stuff and they know so much and it's so interesting. And that's, you know, I said, holy cow, how, there's gotta be some way to make this, to make this kind of experience more, you know, make walking around in front of paintings something more like having a really educated guide. I do not, I do not, um, disrespect, um, connoisseurship and expertise in art. Um, I've learned a lot from books and from people who really know stuff and it's changed my taste. And I, and also I've learned, and I, uh, I think many people have learned that whether you like something is kind of the least interesting. So what's the, what's the, what's the conversation most most likely to run aground within 30 seconds. It's the intermission con conversation after a concert. And somebody says, um, wow, did you like the Schubert? And then the other person says, well, I like the Brahms better. Well, <laughs> it's <that's>, over. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> Nobody's really learned anything. Right. Uh, uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I didn't, kind of, I didn't I, mean to suggest that you could just say, well, I like the green of that painting, therefore I'm right or whatever. I understand yeah. that there's learning to be done, but for, and it's a process. Presumably what right. you liked when you first started going to museums is not the same. As you said, you've learned. And Yeah, and there's also, I mean, art art links to other things that people are already interested in in a variety of different ways. And and one thing I tax museums for is is that they take advantage of this so little. Um, all the art supplies in the museum store are in the children's section in every museum I'm familiar with. Now, what's the message? Yeah. What's the message here? Um, I've never seen, and I mean, it's not just museums. I've never seen a score, uh, or sheet music for sale at the intermission shop of the symphony. Um, I've never seen stage makeup and scripts for sale at the intermission shop of the theater. Well, there's a strong lesson here that real art is done for you by experts and you just, you passively consume it. And, um, 
And I think if people got their hands dirty and if, if you went to the museum and saw somebody making art, much of which has interesting technical aspects and they're like shade tree mechanics and, and basement woodworkers who like to make stuff and would be interested in how did, you know, what's an engraving? What's engraving? How does that turn into a piece of paper? Well, we could see that even if only in videos, but, but the, the art has been, you know, extracted from the process. Second thing we don't learn about, for example, is the whole socioeconomic structure of how art gets made, sold, traded, and exchanged. Uh, you, you go to a museum, you just have no idea that this is a large, a large business with auctions and dealers. Uh, you know, what they ask an art dealer. Interested? Here's some art dealers. When you go to a sale gallery, what should you do? And again, visitor museum gets none of this. And that's too bad because it could enrich the experience in many ways. You know, when, when, um, after my wife and I had been married for a few years, we both decided to teach ourselves how to draw. Good for you. Uh, I'm a, I was a C student in art until about sixth grade or seventh when we, of course, stopped taking it. And I, quote, knew, I knew, quote, I couldn't draw. And uh, my wife similarly had mediocre drawing ability. So we, that was something that would be like playing, saying to us, well, you can't play tennis because you're not good at it. But, of course, most things, if you practice them, you get better. And so um, uh, we picked up a copy of the book Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which is a phenomenal book. And we started at night taking a little time and learning how to draw. My wife uh, became a painter. And she's also a math teacher. so cool. She's also a math teacher, but, but she paints. And I ended up, although I, could, I taught myself how to draw, and by that I think it's important to describe what that means. I, if you said to me, draw a horse, I can't do it. If you gave me a picture of a horse or showed me a horse, I could actually learn to draw it. I could even draw my own likeness or the likeness of a friend so that it actually could be recognized as that person. And, quote, <clears throat> I have no talent um, in the sense that I can't just draw from scratch. And people who are gifted, of course, can do that and do all kinds of wonderful things beyond what I could do. But that got me interested in photography and what art, photography, drawing, painting, sculpture, what it does is it teaches you how to see and it changes the way you look at the world. So why don't we close with your first paragraph of your essay where you say that art policy might be the most important policy uh, facing the United States. I'm not sure I agree with you, but I love the point you're trying to make there. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a semi-joke that I <laughs> tell my students when I'm re recruiting them to take the arts policy class. Um, most people agree that health policy is really important. And I would respond by saying, well, if life isn't worth living, why would you want to make it longer? Uh, Can't agree some, more. Yep. Sorry, I, I couldn't agree more. You're right. <laughs> doesn't mean doesn't, the next part doesn't necessarily follow, but but it suggests that it's not unimportant. Well, you have to you have to recognize that policy, and I also let's recognize that in the United States we have this unique situation where arts policy is not merely a matter of government. Um, arts because we've put we've put our arts institutions into this distinctive American nonprofit sort of semi-governmental yeah. structure. Quasi. <laughs> that, yeah, if, if, um, you know, if you work in a museum in France, you're a civil servant and, you, and it's a government agency. If you work in a museum in the States, you work for a private organization that has special rules and tax benefits. Um, so arts policy is made by nonprofits that aren't actually part of government, but 
it's still important. So yeah. it's it's a larger system. Yeah, I view that as a as a plus. But I, you know, I, I, I yeah, certainly yeah, also, may well be. And I, but I also agree with you that the culture that sustains those organizations and that and that colors them is open for conversation, which is what we're doing now. Yeah. Well, uh, good. And I think the more the better. Um, I don't know if I, I guess if I get a if I get a tagline, it's it's how you know how would we think about museums if we recognize that what they mainly do, which is to collect art and have it, isn't what society has charged them with. Um, what society has charged them with is to maximize the quality and amount of engagement with rewarding art. And if you take that standard, um, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of low hanging fruit and opportunities to create all kinds of value that um, and, and I think it would also be more fun to run a museum that had that richer that, that had that richer purpose yeah and again I it, part of that is is the culture that currently exists around being a director and I've known some people in that world and it, you know it has its own accoutrements and uh, honors and sources yeah. of pride and and it would be great maybe if they were a little bit different and it, that's not easy to change obviously that's a an emergent right bottom-up phenomenon that comes from centuries of all kinds of things we can't fully understand. But um, I think an innovator I, – I actually want, I don't want to miss this chance. I want to mention an innovation I want to, I want to encourage uh, somehow. Uh, we talked about the audio guides. So if you go to a, a fancy um, traveling exhibit, there's always an audio guide. And again, I, I, I'm, I'm always mar- – as an educator, I always marvel at their um, – their op- opacity at times, um, and not just opacity. It's not just I'm not technically trained. The, the words don't – sentences don't always make sense, and it's not because I don't know the vocabulary. There's a certain um, grandeur there that is a little too too grand. But there's a new thing I've noticed because of smartphones. I was in the National Gallery maybe six, seven weeks ago with my wife, and while I was there, I downloaded the app for the National right. Gallery, which yep. let me – point my smartphone at certain pieces on the wall, not part of the uh, traveling exhibit, but part of the permanent collection and learn about them. And I was underwhelmed. I learned a few things that were useful, but I was underwhelmed. Um, By the content? By the content. Yeah. I love the idea of it. I love the creativity of it. But it strikes me there's an enormous entrepreneurial opportunity there for a, quote, amateur, meaning a non-employee, to create their own. Um, tour. Right. Um, right. Their own idiosyncratic. I mean, maybe it's Tyler Cowen. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's you. I mean, I, or ideally, it's it's the director who doesn't farm it out to to the so called expert, but gives you that behind the scenes, passionate. Here's what I love about my uh, collection, and it could be that you know, that's one of four or fifteen that you get to choose from. So I think I think technology gives us some hope for some creativity there. I agree, and I think I also I think the Google um, the Google Museum uh, program, which is it's like Google Street. I forget now what it's called, but it's it's like Google Streets, and what it allows you to do is walk around. Uh, I think a couple of hundred museums, and you just walk down the wall, and the paintings go by, and uh, many of them are. If you click on them, they're available in very high resolution. And you don't have to leave your house. Well, that's not always good. It's sometimes good to get out. But um, you can go to museums halfway around the world. 
And I agree. I agree with you that we've, we're we're just beginning to learn how to use these uh, these technological opportunities. And the idea that that the idea that that phone barcode image recognition guide doesn't have to be from the museum you're in. It could be my friend, the art history professor. Right. It's, um, yeah. Who's engaging who's, and funny and <laughs> who's in the business, right, of educating. And you could just go online and download it and take it with you to the museum and get another perspective. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think coming. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think it's coming. Um, and we can afford to buy all of this stuff at almost no cost. Correct. Somebody has to put in that time for the maybe for the glory. They could sell it for a dollar ninety nine or yeah, five no, ninety nine. No, the museum museums could fund this if they just you know clean up their basements. <laughs> so. Last question. You, you, you've talked about how um, uh, a director might push his chair away from the table when you talk even subconsciously or that, that they, this is somewhat threatening to their culture, at least, if not their livelihood and job. Uh, has anybody reacted enthusiastically besides me to your article who's got some power? Who's got some power? Yeah, no. who's got influence in the art world, in the museum uh, world? I don't know. It's um, not to me. Um, whether these whether these guys are passing it around and saying, "Oh my God, you know, <laughs> did you see this?" Um, I don't know. And um, there uh, there there are a couple of people who work in museums who have said, "Yeah, this is just what we need." Um, there have been yes. people not well. I, so I have. I, I guess it's fair to say this. Uh, one of the best one of the best books about about the art world is in fact called Art Worlds um, by Howard Becker, a sociologist who is also a jazz pianist and a photographer, and I mean at a professional level. Um, and he lives in San Francisco, and I've been using his textbook in class, and I thought, gee, you might be interested in this. So I sent him a copy of the article, and he thought it was really interesting. So That's there's a sign that if you, get, if you get a little bit out, a little bit outside the echo chamber, um, and, and Becker is a guy whose opinion I really respect, so that made my day or my week. Um, if you get a little bit outside the echo chamber, um, I think there is, I think there is some real interest. But, you know, if my plea is if anyone's listening to this who's an art museum trustee, the next time you go to a trustees meeting, act like a businessman who, you know, act like you do at the office where you made your money and demand value for money and ask questions about administrative decisions that that um, haven't been exposed to the light and see what happens. My guest today has been Michael O'Hare. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Okay, it was fun. Nice to talk to you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>